doesn't have any certainty of is the future life. In fact, he, he claims basically ignorance, doesn't know, have any certainty about what's going to happen in the next life. I think this is something he would have had access to, of course, and, uh, and if he was believing and following God at that point, he would have known there was a future resurrection. But look over at Daniel, something uh, he would not have had, Daniel chapter 12, and here in Daniel being given prophecy about the future, about things that would happen, and really the previous chapters are in time and space and future Israel history on earth, but here there's a switch that goes on, um, and he says, many of those who sleep in the dust, verse 2, after talking about a time of distress that would happen, and I think even a reference to the tribulation, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Um, those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. Those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Uh, so really a very direct reference here to resurrection, that they would be raised again from the dust, from after death to life. Um, and now would have everlasting life. So, again, a key reference that the Pharisees, that Sadducees and Paul would have known, and really basing that hope of resurrection, that this isn't the end, that this life is not um, all there is, and that he, of course, knows Christ has been raised, and that then he too and, and we will enjoy and look forward to resurrection one other passage, Ezekiel 37, and you may be familiar with the Valley of the Bones, and that's really what this is focused on, um, and really a, an illustration, a vivid illustration given to Ezekiel that these dry bones are really representing Israel, past Jews, and that God would bring them back to life, and so really goes through this scenario with these bones coming back and flesh and sinews coming back on them. Um, and really, God's saying he's going to raise Israel back to life or bring Jews back to life. Verse 11, And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And notice the effect of this, and really this resurrection of Jews and his promise of future glory and restoration of the nation. Um, he says, Then you will know that I am the Lord that I am Yahweh, when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. And that, that's a phrase that you see often in the prophets connected with God's promises to Israel and the future fulfillment. He'll even say, the world's going to know. The world's going to know that I am God when I do this for Israel. Uh, but here, even the resurrection of the dead, opening the graves, bringing dead Jews back to life, of course, of course the righteous, uh, similar to Daniel chapter 12. And I will put my spirit within you, and you will come to life, and I will place you on the land. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and done it. Um, and then he goes on to even talk about the kingdoms, the northern and southern tribes being brought back to one kingdom again. 
where they've been separated for hundreds of years, uh, and now they're eventually going to be brought back to one nation, all 12 tribes into one nation. Then verse 24, my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And there's a few other times in the prophets where God promises David himself uh, will be king over them. And again, a resurrection, David coming back from the dead. Um, I can't remember the exact reference. There was another place where David and the Messiah, or David and God are together reigning, which would indicate he's not just using the term to refer to the Messiah, but David himself. And I think that's the case here. He's going to bring him back from the dead. So a number of places where in the Old Testament, of course, a lot more prominence in the Gospels and the New Testament after the cross, after the resurrection of Christ. But there were these references in the Old Testament that they should have known, they could have known um, that God would raise them from the dead. And I think Paul here in Acts 24 referring to that, that he believes the law and the prophets and this hope of the resurrection, that this is not all there is, that Jesus was raised and that he too and those who believe in him would be raised as well. And declaring that in this um, situation, in the proceedings and, and the case that he's trying to put forward. Um, he goes on then to speak further in this view of this, verse 16, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Um, Paul is declaring his innocence, even that that's his drive in life. That's his drive to be um, doing what's right and therefore to have a conscience that is clear, not that is that there's no guilt or shame or feeling of I've done different wrongs and I feel bad for that or I have this conscience that's bugging me or, or making me feel bad. It's interesting that even before he was saved, there was this drive in his mind to do the law. In fact, he makes a pretty strong statement, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, as he's declaring that he, you know, if anybody could boast in the flesh, he could boast even more than all of them. Verse 4, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Philippians 3, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteous, which is in the law, found blameless. And of course, we know he wasn't sinless, and that wouldn't be absolutely true, but there was this drive to obey and to obey to the nth degree. Um, and so even could say this about his former life before Christ, uh, that he was driven and had kept the law in his mind um, blamelessly. Of course, he comes to the realization here that all that was for naught that he was still a sinner and could not save himself, and he needed the righteousness of Christ. And that's really where he's ultimately going, but begins by declaring as a Pharisee he was driven. So even now, as a believer, he's driven to be godly. He's driven to be righteous in all that he does. And really, in the face of this prosecution, in the face of these false accusations, he can make this declaration. Um 
that I do my best, verse 16, to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. Again, we mentioned this last week that that's one of the reasons we should be driven to become more godly. One of the reasons we want to be repenting of sin on an ongoing basis as we are convicted about it or we commit it and turn away from it, that we might have this blameless conscience. Paul even says, I think in 1 Timothy, that that's one of the goals of our, our instruction of our life with Christ is to have a blameless conscience so that when these accusations occur, when we are slandered, whether that's at work by a coworker, <clears throat> whether it's in a neighborhood situation or family, whatever it is, that it would be false, that it would not be true. And we could, like Paul, say, I've been striving to have this blameless conscience, and I do, and that's really what he's declaring here, a great blessing that he can say this, a great blessing that he can respond this way and really rightfully knock down these false accusations, this slander that has been brought against him so viciously, so strongly, so persistently, and yet it's not true. He goes on now to speak again about what he was doing. He said, I'm not doing what they said. <clears throat> this is what I was doing. Verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. So he's saying, I was acting peacefully. I was acting again according to the, the regulations, what the law stipulated. <clears throat> I was acting in, with good motive here. I was actually bringing offering to help the Jews, especially, of course, Christian Jews, um, but I'm, I was doing things that were peaceful and good, not what they're accusing me of. I was in no way trying to stir up or cause trouble. They, they can't prove that because I wasn't doing it. I was actually conducting myself in a good and godly way. Again, another great testimony for us that that's how we should be living. That's how we should be striving to conduct ourselves, going about obeying God, living a life of peace and godliness that he has given for us to do um, and to obviously spread the gospel, to be worshiping together, to be serving together, encouraging one another, all the thing that, things that God has given for us to do. Um, and, and here that's what Paul is doing. I was doing the things that were for the good of others and doing it in a peaceful and loving way. And now he's going to put his finger on the real problem here <clears throat> that we saw back when this all got blown up. And that is that there's really these Jews that chased him all around Asia that have now come back to Jerusalem and they're the rabble rousers. There's the ones that have been causing trouble by continually stirring up riots, by continually attacking Paul, trying to kill Paul, trying to hinder his ministry. <clears throat> so that's what Paul refers to here is these certain Jews um, at the end of verse 18, um, he says, <clears throat> pardon me, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make accusation. I mean, they're the ones who did this. They're the ones who caused the, if, if anybody should be here and making accusations, they are the ones because they're the ones who started it all. There's the ones who actually caused this. And, of course, they aren't there or aren't anywhere to be found. Um, they ought to make accusation if they should have anything against me. Or else let these 
men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. Other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Again, he challenges them. They've been very general and broad in their accusation, no specifics. And he's saying, come on, hand over the goods, give the specifics um, if you have any. And of course they don't. And again, he, even before the council, he references back that all I did was declare that I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead pointing back to the resurrection of Christ and the hope that I'm presenting that if you believe in Christ and admit your sin and trust in his death, burial, and resurrection, that you too will be raised someday, that you too will have that same hope of resurrection. That's the issue here. Again, that's nothing that has anything to do with Felix and a civil trial. There's nothing here that has to do with Rome and any kind of insurrection or public crime Uh, that would merit this kind of case or this kind of trial going on. And that's what Paul is showing here. Again, we find the blessing that Felix is involved because in verse 22, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysia, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. And so he knows a lot about this. This isn't, and, and Paul started rightfully. He wasn't flattering him. He rightfully said, I'm glad I'm talking to you before you. I'm presenting before you because you know, you have, you have insight into this. Obviously, all judges or, or rulers, even of that era or that time and place, wouldn't necessarily have had that, but Felix did. And so he, he knows what Paul is saying, that there's truth to what Paul is saying. Um, and so he puts the case off here. Then we find a period of time that, would most likely have been pretty challenging for Paul. We're not given insight as to what he thought and really much of what goes on here. But of course, Paul has been about for, you know, what, 10 years maybe or a good number of years going on these missionary journeys, planting the church, uh, ministering to people, uh, seeing God work, saving people. And now all of a sudden his life is going to really screech to a halt here. I mean, it already has for whether this is weeks now, um, but now we're going to see a couple of years and even then prolonged beyond that because he's going to go to Rome and then he's going to be under house arrest and life is going to drastically change for Paul and his ministry is going to drastically change. In fact, it's going to go from Paul ministering to the masses to in, in some ways, Paul ministering to one man. I mean, there's other things that are going to happen here again that we aren't told about. And so he's able to conduct some ministry. In fact, we find in this next verse that Felix gives orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. And so the blessing here that um, I think even with Felix knowing some of what Paul's saying is true and perhaps even uh, realizing or agreeing that in in the clear way he's not guilty um, allows him doesn't let him go and there seems some deference to the Jews we'll see later on but um, at the same time gives him continued freedom in the sense he's going to be like in Rome under house arrest here he's still incarcerated but he's allowed to have freely friends come and go and people minister to him in whatever way uh, that would be but again there's a drastic change here And I think in our lives and in our ministries, sometimes there are these drastic changes that occur. 
we have plans one way and God has a plan a different way. And when that happens, sometimes it's very surprising. It can be very painful and we can really struggle to accept that and really then go down this different path that God has for us and know that he knows what he's doing. Again, here, Paul now begins really to have this extended ministry to Felix. Again, he's interacting with others, and there's certainly other things going on, but he's stuck in one place, and we find that he has this extended time with Felix. And whether that's Felix and others in the the court or others in his household or whatever, we're not sure. But again, it's drastically different. And we don't even see that he gets saved here. We, I hope we get to see Felix in heaven. I, I hope he eventually uh, repented. Uh, we find that in, in the discussions here, that doesn't happen. Um, verse 24, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Again, he's getting this repeated opportunity with Felix to share the gospel. Um I think I've referenced, you know, MacArthur during the the shutdown of COVID and they're threatening him to throw him in jail. And his response was, well, I've never had a jail ministry. So it looks like I'm going to have a new, you know, ministry. If you throw me in jail, I'll I'll start preaching there. (laughs) I'll start sharing. You know, again, it's accepting God's changes. God knows what he wants, knows what's best, knows what he's doing in our lives. And we need to accept that even when it's hard and painful uh, or different than what we may be expected. Here he's sharing the faith and he's not, he's doing this. He's not upset or frustrated and sitting in his cell um, doing nothing. He's ready and willing. This is the, the opportunity God's given him to talk to Felix and he call, he sends for him and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. He's ready and willing, whatever the situation, just like MacArthur, which uh I was pretty sure that wasn't going to happen because it had been a PR disaster. I mean, to put an 80-year-old pastor, beloved, and, you know, long-term in your city, and now you're going to lock him up over COVID? Uh, I don't think that's going to, and it didn't happen, of course. (laughs) And eventually the state lost and had to pay the finance, the uh, legal fees and everything against MacArthur and other churches that they were harassing, basically. Um, So it was neat how God chose to, to bring that about or turn that out, but... Um, here he's ready to do this and notice verse 25 but as he was discussing righteousness self-control and judgment to come see the wide-ranging you know truths or doctrines that Paul's talking about righteousness self-control and judgment Um, so of course the gospel but then other aspects of how the gospel affects us the freedom it brings from sin perhaps Um, The future of judgment to come, the future events that will lead to ultimately judgment of the unbelievers, um, those who won't repent. And Paul was so, which not a surprise, but so powerful. Look at the effect. Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I will summon you. Um, And he has an ulterior motive as well. Verse 26, he's hoping that money would be given him by Paul. And so he used to send for him quite often to converse him. So he's not only maybe has curiosity or interest about what Paul is preaching, but he's hoping he'll get a bribe. And then he would release Paul, perhaps, if he's given a sum of money, which he doesn't receive. Um, But again, what an example here. 
for Paul that even though things are drastically changed, it, it doesn't change his commitment to obey Christ and to serve God. And in this case, hey, if God wants to be one-on-one -on -one with this ruler, fine. I'll share the gospel with this ruler. You know, I'll be faithful to do that um, and trust God in that process. You know, some of you know for me that on a couple of different times in my life earlier, it turned out that I was needing to leave the ministries I was in on two occasions. Um, different doctoral issues came up and couldn't be worked through. And, and so in both cases, I chose to resign and, and leave. And that put me in this limbo of not being in ministry and doing other things, but wanting very much to be back in ministry. Wasn't the plan that I had. Um, Yet in both cases, God had other things for me to do. You know, the first time when I was in Pawnee City, a small church in south um, east Nebraska, and there and then left. And in the meantime, before I got into another ministry, the second one in South Dakota, you know, my father um, got sick or, or fell down some stairs. He had Parkinson's and ended up dying. And so I was really there to be able to be able to focus on that situation, help my mom and as a family deal with that, work through that. Um, and so really not being in ministry as God would have it gave me a lot greater freedom to deal with that than if I was still in ministry. There were people that I was blessed to minister to. I got to teach. I, was, I worked for Voss actually during that time. They graciously gave me a job um, and worked in Lincoln Got to teach their Bible study during that time, which was a joy, but also someone there ended up really facing um, an unfaithful spouse and going through ultimately divorce and able to minister to that man and really uh, encouraged, was able to really spend time with one of my brothers and try to help him spiritually. And so again, it was just not my plan, not what I you know would have wanted. And yet God chose to, for a time, take me out of ministry and had these other things that he wanted me to do and eventually took us to South Dakota and really to then minister there for a number of years. Again, that sadly didn't work out and ended up going back to Omaha. And again, God had things that he wanted me to do, ways that he wanted to have me minister and actually show his faithfulness. It was even more, a lot more painful and I was really devastated by what happened and even wondered, am I supposed to be a pastor? <laughs> um, is this really your plan? But God chose to have me go fill pulpits uh, for a while in, in a small church or small churches and really encouraged me through that time and again used me in, in a lot of different ways that I wouldn't have expected. Um, even did part-time repair work, which I didn't think I could do that well, but unbeknownst to me, hey, as I went out and prayed and painted and did things, I could do them, but had different opportunities to share the gospel as well with the people that I did work for. Um, so really in a different way, but along the same lines as what Paul experienced, I really had to learn to say, Lord, you know, what? Your, whatever your plan is, I really don't want to be out of full-time ministry. I really don't want to be out of the pastorate right now, but you've chosen for that to be the case and I'll trust you. And eventually again, he brought us here um, unbeknownst to me and, and had the ministry here now 16 years and, and counting and God continues to use us. But um, it's really accepting those plans. It might be a, a loss of a job suddenly or unexpectedly. It might be a health situation that you didn't see coming that changes your life drastically. I mean, all these different things that can happen 
that, of course, we don't know are coming, and all of a sudden they hit us, how are we going to respond? Are we going to accept them from God and know that he, again, knows what he's doing, know that his plan is best, trust in him? And I know even as we learn about his sovereignty, we learn about his faithfulness, his love from the scripture, it gives us that foundation so that when we are hit by something like that, we can really rest in the Lord. We will and are able to really believe that he knows what he's doing and just continue as Paul did to do what he gives us to do, to continue to minister to the people that he brings into our lives, whether it's more or less and in different ways than we expected. And yet let the Lord continue to work and see what he's going to do. I think this is a great example for us that Paul does this, um, that he continues to be faithful I think another great example of this was Joseph. You know, Joseph's trying to be faithful, try, he trusts in the Lord, trying to obey his father. He almost gets killed, then gets sent off as a slave. He's a slave for, um, ultimately, he's imprisoned, a slave or imprisoned for 13 years, gets framed as a slave, gets thrown in prison, uh, suffers there for many years, finally is released and, and elevated to second in command. Um, but again, he's faithful through all that time. He continues to try. You don't see Joseph's, you know, sour, sitting in his cell, you know, complaining and whining. But you see him faithfully serving, faithfully obeying, even though he's been terribly mistreated. Uh, some of the worst things you could have happened to you or people do to you have been done to him. And yet he keeps on serving. He keeps on obeying Christ. And of course, we're told in those stories that God was with him. God was present with him, encouraging, strengthening, helping him, and that's what he'll do for us as well. And that's what he's doing for um, Paul as he's going through a different time and imprisoned. Again, he's going to go through even then this whole another trial and then eventually this trip to Rome that we'll see and there under house arrest as well. But all of that, God is at work. God has a plan and a purpose, and he's trusting him by continuing to serve and obey him. We'll stop there for this morning. It says two years pass by and he leaves him imprisoned and we'll see that that leads to another um, trial and another presentation of the gospel and another ruler who almost gets saved, it, it would seem. Again, hopefully uh, Festus as well eventually got saved. He doesn't in the in the uh, narrative that we have, but hopefully did eventually um, but again, God using Paul again in a powerful way to be a witness there as well. Thoughts or questions before we go to prayer, but uh, just some good reminders for us, good example, um, because, you know, we should try to plan and try to purpose what we think God wants us to do and yet always be ready when changes happen. Big changes sometimes that we didn't see or even at times don't want and yet God knows what he's doing. God knows what his plan is. So. I think it's just interesting to see just Paul's humility in all of this. You know, how gracious he is. He's not just breathing fire back at this guy that unlawfully had him in prison. And like you're saying, you know, just the, the opportunity for ministry that way, you know, to see, um, you know, even now, 2,000 years later, how hard that whole society is to the gospel and would have still been even more so then, probably. Um, 
when he have these opportunities at the highest levels to just pour the gospel right into the, the, the top of the ether, so to speak. Yeah, we'll get there eventually, but of course, even in Rome, he reached his his uh, witness reaches the the uh, Praetorian Guard, which is Caesar's own guard, and even reaches to Caesar's household. At the end of Philippians, he greets, he sends a greeting from those in Caesar's household. So, yeah, even with such a drastic change and quote limitation, and his faithfulness, God uses him to reach what otherwise would have never been reached, but he reaches because of you know, having been imprisoned and having to go through years of this unjust treatment, um, and yet God's at work. Yeah, right, good point. That's a good example. Yeah, if he's fighting it, if he's, you know, upset and angry about it the whole time, then he's not used of God um, or used less than he could have been, ultimately. And certainly would have missed out on the joy Philippians, crazy. Philippians is the book of joy, and he's imprisoned and can't do what he's been doing, but yet he's faithful and sees God work in these powerful ways, even through all the struggles and trials. So, yeah, for sure.